This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Before I begin this episode, I just wanted to ask you a favor. It's episode 50, hooray, and I'm doing a short survey to find out a little bit more about you, about what you like about the show. I really want to make another 50 episodes of Words to That Effect, but I'd like to make a few changes, shake things up a little bit, and I would really love to hear what you have to say. I have never done a listener survey before, shockingly, after this amount of time, so either right now or after you've listened to this episode, if you could head to wttepodcast.com slash survey. So that's the WTTE website, wttepodcast.com slash survey. You can answer a few questions about the show. It won't take very long. And you can help me make the next 50 episodes. Thank you very much. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. In 1905 in Paris, the publisher Pierre Lafitte had an idea. His new journal, Je Sais Tout, I Know Everything, had just launched and he was looking for an author who could do for his magazine what Arthur Conan Doyle's phenomenally popular Sherlock Holmes had done for the Strand magazine in London. Lafitte wanted a French rival to Sherlock Holmes, both in character and, more importantly, in the ability to attract a mass readership. At this point, the Holmes tales had become renowned across the world, and the great detective, killed off by his creator in 1893, had returned from the dead just two years previously, in 1903. The French public were just as avid readers of Holmes's exploits, both in English and with Conan Doyle's work widely available in French translations. And so, Pierre Lafitte approached the writer Maurice Leblanc and commissioned him to write a story with a character to rival Holmes. Leblanc obliged and, in doing so, created one of the most memorable and successful characters in French popular fiction, the gentleman thief Arsène Lupin. With the publication of the first story in 1905, a brilliant new literary creation was born. Lupin was cunning, sophisticated, quick-witted, a master of disguise, always one step ahead of the police, and a thief of humble origins who steals only from the wealthy upper classes. But why did this gentleman thief achieve such instant and lasting renown? How does he fit into popular crime fiction more widely? And, you may be wondering, how did he end up as the basis for one of the most popular shows Netflix has ever made? Bigger than Stranger Things, Bridgerton, or, God help us, Tiger King. The first Lupin story, The Arrest of Arsène Lupin, introduces one of the crucial aspects of the gentleman thief's success, his ability to utterly transform his identity. The characters in Lupin's stories are never sure who in a given group of people may be the master criminal. But neither are you, as the reader. The narrator changes from story to story. Sometimes it's a Watson-like figure. Sometimes it's an omniscient narrator. Sometimes it changes mid-story. And frequently, the narrator is unreliable. When you start reading a Lupin story, you may have your suspicions, but like the characters, you're never sure Lupin could be anyone. There are certain things that tend to stay the same. He will generally pose as a member of the upper classes, a politician or wealthy businessman perhaps, or more typically a prince or baron or 
account of some description. All the better to infiltrate the upper classes and relieve them of their priceless artwork and jewels. Regardless of persona, though, Lupin will always be suave, highly educated, charismatic. He's a con man, and he gains the confidence of all those around him with ease. And while he may be a master of disguise, his name is known across the world, which is something he uses to great effect. So he announces publicly that he will escape from jail, or that he's going to rob a particular work of art, and he uses the public fascination with his escapades to distract from what is really going on. As the constantly frustrated detective Ganimar comes to realise, Lupin never does anything without a reason. If Ganimar finds a clue, it's because Lupin wants him to find the clue. If Lupin seems to be in trouble or seems to have bungled a job, it's because Lupin wants it to seem that way. The story The Red Silk Scarf is a particularly good example of this, where despite all he knows about Lupin, Ganimar is still pulled into trying to solve a murder with Lupin's help only to realise too late how Lupin has been pulling the strings the entire time. He's a rogue and a genius, and the public love him for it. He pulls off daring heists and steals only from the wealthy upper classes. Although he's not, it should be noted, a kind of Robin Hood figure, he certainly steals from the rich, but he doesn't really give to the poor. He helps people out on occasion, but really he steals because he enjoys it, and he uses the money to fund his daring and extravagant lifestyle. And to pay the vast network of accomplices, he needs to carry out his robberies and avoid getting caught. Arsène Lupin may seem like a familiar character, and in many ways he is. The parallels with Sherlock Holmes are very clear, and I'll come back to that. But Lupin has in turn influenced crime fiction and popular culture in France and further afield. Simon Templar, The Saint, Leslie Charteris' books and their many subsequent TV and film adaptations is definitely one clear successor. In many ways, too, he's a James Bond figure, something that Omar Sy, the actor who plays Lupin's successor in the new Netflix show, acknowledged in an interview. When he was asked what character he would love to play, his answer was Lupin. If I was English, he says, I would say James Bond, but Lupin is the best character for that. He's fun, funny, very elegant, there's action. Lupin is just a perfect character to cross off everything on the bucket list. But of course, Maurice LeBlanc's creation didn't arrive out of nowhere. It came in a long and esteemed tradition of French crime novels. Detective fiction is sometimes seen as emerging out of Britain and the US, but it was always in conversation with French detective fiction. In the 1840s, American writer Edgar Allan Poe gave the world one of the first literary detectives. But of course, C. Auguste Dupin is a Frenchman, and the stories are all set in Paris. The first police detective by a French author followed in the 1860s with Emile Gaborio's Monsieur Lecoq. And both Gaborio and Edgar Allan Poe were influenced by a real-life French figure, Eugène-François Vidocq. So Vidocq was a criminal turned police informant and then the founder of the Sûreté, the world's first detective branch, the inspiration for Scotland Yard and the FBI, amongst others. Vidocq led an extraordinary life, celebrated in his sensational best-selling memoirs. His mastery of disguises and ability to work for long periods undercover and his contacts in and knowledge of the criminal underworld allowed him to become a brilliantly effective detective. And this was a time when the lines between real and fictional crime were often quite blurred. 
Vidoc's memoirs were ghostwritten and widely embellished, but based still on his real-life exploits. Meanwhile, cheap French newspapers reported in lurid detail on crimes and criminals, while simultaneously commissioning authors to write crime fiction to run alongside the news. This was how Gaborio's detective Lecoq was born, for example. So Vidoc and his adventure-filled life influenced everything that came after him, and he gave a status to the detective. He made the life of a police officer heroic. Vidoc, Lecoq, Sherlock, they're all connected. And out of all this came Arsène Lupin, a French man with the analytical mind of Sherlock Holmes or Auguste Dupin, whose life has the romance and adventure of Vidoc. And just like Vidoc, later in his career, Lupin would leave his life of crime behind in favour of detective work, even if they're those who never trust he has fully left his old life behind. There was also the influence of another English literary character of the period, the writer E.W. Hornung, who was actually Arthur Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. He created Raffles, a gentleman thief like Lupin, rather than a detective. And Raffles, like Holmes and Lupin, is a master of disguise. Just like, in fact, another famous character from this period, the Scarlet Pimpernel, the creation of Baroness Ortsy. The Scarlet Pimpernel, the secret superhero identity of a foppish English aristocrat, can disguise himself so well he can infiltrate Paris and save aristocrats from the bloodthirsty revolutionaries. I did an episode on this, you can check it out. It's episode number 15. So disguises are everywhere, reflecting a lot of anxieties of this period, often conflicting ones. On one hand, criminals could be anywhere. Not just easily identified lower class thieves, but they could be in the ranks of the upper classes. But then so too could the detectives hunting them down, also in disguise. But then these police detectives trying to help the victims may find things that should not be uncovered. Family secrets and crimes that should remain buried in their country manors and chateaux. Criminals like Lupin could be heroes, stealing from those with more wealth than sense, Yet detectives could also lead lives of daring and adventure. Sometimes, like Vidoc or Lupin, the hero could be criminal turned detective. And sometimes, like Sherlock Holmes, the line between detective and criminal could be very thin indeed. With each new Lupin story published, Maurice Leblanc's character became more famous across France. The first set of stories were collected in 1907, and he would go on to write dozens more, alongside novel-length Lupin adventures. The first of several stage plays arrived in 1908, and later the inevitable film and then TV adaptations. The stories have never been out of print since. What does that mean? It means I've failed. That's a fake planted there to trap Arsene Lupin. Not the real Mona Lisa? No. Fire was a fake. The crowd was a fake. They were all his men. I gave him every chance in the world to take it. Where is the real picture? Oh, that's safe enough. Thank heaven. That's over there in the vault. He never in the world would... The vault's open. One of the early tales is entitled Sherlock Holmes Arrives Too Late, or at least it's called that now. At the time, it was changed to Herlock Sholmes for legal reasons. Conan Doyle's lawyers were not particularly happy with the original version. In it, Lupin, of course, manages to best the great British detective, and he even pickpockets Holmes for good measure. Leblanc has a lot of fun with these kind of run-ins. It 
certainly not meant to be taken too seriously, but for all those, quote, Herlock fans, the English detective is outwitted maybe a little too easily by the Frenchman. I haven't read all of the Holmes crossover stories, there, there are quite a few, but they're not generally regarded as the greatest of the Lupin tales. C'est étrange ce que vous ressemblez à Arsène Lupin, mon cher Velmont. Devan, ne me dites pas que vous le connaissez. Holmes also appears in a kind of cameo role in what is the most well-known of the Lupin novels, The Hollow Needle. Although in the US translation, his name is changed again. In the version I read anyway, he was Homelock Shears. Anyway, in the early tales, Lupin outwits everyone he robs and the French police with ease. He also falls in love on a number of occasions, although he tends to be less masterful in his romantic pursuits, sometimes with tragic results. Overall, though, these are great crime stories. Like with Holmes, the short story format really works to frame Lupin's exploits. The stories of the first collection are interconnected, but they stand on their own as well. And certainly for me anyway, they're far better than something like The Hollow Needle, generally considered his best novel-length tale. Trying to sustain the adventures over the course of a whole novel makes things overly complicated. And in The Hollow Needle, the main protagonist is the far less interesting schoolboy wunderkind who goes head-to-head with the great Lupin. The gentleman thief himself comes across as far less gentlemanly than usual, and the story just sprawls over far too many pages with an overly fantastical tale of historical intrigue going back centuries. In all of the stories, and just like with Holmes, Lupin stays outside the law. Holmes has no particular interest in bringing criminals to justice as such, he just wants to solve the puzzle, find the solution no one else can. The subsequent arrest or prosecution of the criminal holds no particular importance. Lupin, too, has no real interest in righting any wrongs or in the later tales when he's hunting down criminals of necessarily bringing anyone to justice. He highlights the injustice of the world, where wealthy aristocrats are often far more corrupt and criminal than those in prison, but he doesn't really try to change anything as such. He simply steals what he can because he can. He has his own code of ethics, certainly. He's a gentleman. He treats his victims in a very civilised manner, and he certainly won't murder anyone to get what he wants. But he will do almost anything else. Kidnapping, blackmail, threats, forgery, impersonation, whatever is needed. In one of the later stories, On the Top of the Tower, Lupin solves a particularly cold-hearted murder. But rather than outing the murderer to the authorities, Lupin uses the power he holds over him to force him to sign over a fortune that he owes but hasn't paid to his niece. It just so happens that Lupin is madly in love with this very niece. He's a gentleman and he's a thief, but he has plenty of moral grey areas. Which brings us to the newest incarnation of Lupin, with his own morals and gentlemanly code of conduct, Asan Diop, the protagonist of Netflix's Lupin series, which I'll get to after this very quick break. So I wanted to tell you very quickly about a couple of things. First up is the sponsor of this episode, which is the podcast 180 Degrees. This is a show that shares the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. There are episodes on electric cars, on working in sustainable energy, on how to make a house that is properly insulated and actually warm all year round, which I listened to in winter in my freezing badly insulated attic, and was both inspired and jealous. 
So check it out. It's, it's really interesting. It's called 180 Degrees. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts and is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. Next up is Headstuff Plus. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, and Headstuff Plus is our membership platform, which you can join for €5 Euro plus VAT a month. In return, you get loads of bonus content. You get lots of extras from this podcast, of course, but you also get extras, bonus episodes, lots of other things from every single show on the network, no matter which show you support. So go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can help podcasters like me make more of the shows you love. Speaking of which, I have a quick trailer for you here for another show on the network, Fascinated with Garode Farrelly. This is a great show. If you like your narratives carefully scripted and closely crafted, and well, I think it's safe to say you do, and you like pop culture, well, you will definitely enjoy this show. I would highly recommend a listen. I'm Garoud Farrelly and I'm the host of Fascinated. Have you ever wondered about the pop bands you liked as a teenager? What went on behind the scenes? We had played this like grand prank. It sounds terrible, but I'm just so relieved it's over. And then they had this like great idea of getting another girl in who looked like Heavenly. What did they do afterwards? And all of a sudden you're like, that's the end of that. It was all blowing up when it all kind of just unraveled. And I thought it would last forever and it didn't. Check out Fascinated with me, Gerald Farrelly, on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So, if Maurice LeBlanc's creation was an immediate success in the early 1900s, the recent release of Lupin, created by George Kay and starring Omar Sy, was definitely no less successful. The show has been viewed over 70 million times, making it one of Netflix's most successful shows ever. Given all those Holmes comparisons I've already been mentioning, it's perhaps no surprise that an obvious comparison is Sherlock, the Stephen Moffat and Mark Gattis series with Benedict Cumberbatch in the leading role. Both series draw heavily on their source material, but they completely update it and refresh it in really new and interesting ways for the 21st century. In the case of the new Lupin series, the character is not actually Lupin at all, but Assan Diop, a man whose biography somewhat mirrors the famous master criminal, and who certainly looks to Lupin to provide the inspiration for his own career as a gentleman thief. Like his hero, Diop is suave and well-educated, cunning, resourceful. Unlike the original Lupin, however, Diop is the son of Senegalese immigrants to France. The opening episode closely mirrors the well-known Lupin story, The Queen's Necklace, a story which reveals Lupin's humble origins and career as a thief. In the case of Diop, when he was a boy, his father was framed for the theft of a priceless necklace, later killing himself in prison. So when the necklace re-emerges in Paris, for sale at an auction in the Louvre, Diop takes it upon himself to both steal the necklace and to solve the mystery of his father's death. He is, like Lupin, both criminal and detective. The key difference, of course, made pointedly and repeatedly in the series, is that the colour of Diop's skin gives an extra dimension to his abilities as a master of disguise. He can saunter into the Louvre as a James Bond figure dressed in a designer suit and ready to buy a diamond necklace, but he can simultaneously disappear into the background as a museum janitor, who will pay any attention to the immigrant cleaning the museum toilets. Diop pulls the same trick again later by dressing as a food delivery biker and then ordering dozens of others to the same spot. They all look alike and he gets away. A bit like a Deliveroo version of the ending of the Pierce Brosnan Thomas Crown Affair. 
the show plays with the viewer's expectations and prejudices about who Diop really is, slowly revealing new clues as the series progresses. Like the original stories, Diop steals from the rich, especially from those who deserve it. But Diop's character and his crimes also point to Europe's history of colonialism. In a later episode, he cons a wealthy white woman out of her most precious jewels, as she tells him how they were all looted from the Belgian Congo. Omar C's Diop is also, in another departure from the original tales, a father. He has a son from a relationship which is broken down, named Raoul in another nod to the original stories. And while he's so in control of every other facet of his life, finding time for his son evades him, and introducing Raoul to his beloved Lupin books is seemingly the one connection he's really managed to get right. Diop, like Lupin, is always one step ahead of everyone else, except it turns out when it comes to his family. When one knows how to use one's eyes, Lupin states at the end of one of the short stories, adventure exists everywhere, in the meanest hovel, under the mask of the wisest of men. Everywhere, if only you are willing, you'll find an excuse for excitement, for doing good, for saving a victim, for ending an injustice. Noble words from the master criminal, but you get the impression that the do-gooding and the ending of injustice for Diop and certainly for Dupin are at best useful side benefits. Really, for the gentleman thief and for his fans, it's all about the adventure, about an excuse for excitement. And 116 years after Maurice Leblanc's first Lupin story, there are plenty of excuses for excitement. His adventures still live on. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening and a huge thanks at episode 50. If you've been here since the very beginning or if you've supported the show in in any way, it really means so much. And since you're such a wonderful person, if you'd like to help even more, you can support the show at headstuffpodcast.com and don't forget the short survey at wttepodcast.com slash survey. Help me plan out the next 50 episodes. I have ideas, but I would love yours too. As usual, all the links for this episode are on the website, wttepodcast.com. Just me this week, so I ended up doing a lot of research, and all the links are there if you want to know more. You can also follow the show at Words to That Effect on Instagram, on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at C-E-D-Reed, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. And I've got four more great episodes planned in Series 5, so stay tuned, and I'll see you in two weeks. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.